Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have late night jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, a podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat. Today on the podcast, John Sebastian Vera, Principal Trombone of the Pittsburgh Opera and River City Brass Band. My name is Nick Schwartz. If you haven't gathered yet, I'm flying solo. Well, not quite solo, but solo here in the intro and the outro that we do. Because Sebastian's in the hot seat, getting interviewed finally. We started this because listeners actually requested hey, you guys should interview each other. So I went first, and it took a a little bit of pushing to get Sebastian to sit down and do this. Uh, I think he doesn't like to talk about himself very much, (laughs) which I respect, but I think it was a great interview. I think our listeners are really going to really get a sense of Sebastian's vibe, which is a good one. Very calm person, very thoughtful. In case you didn't know, the Trombone Retreat is happening live and in person from August 15th through 21st in Montague, Michigan. The July 10th deadline is rapidly approaching, so get those tapes in. For more information about the audition and repertoire, go to www.trombonetreat.com. Yeah, we hope to hear your tapes and we hope to see you in Michigan. Also upcoming for us is the 2021 International Trombone Festival in Columbus, Georgia at Columbus State University. There, we're going to have a live interview with Joe Alessi, Principal Trombone of the New York Philharmonic. We're very excited to do this. We've never done a live interview. They've always been over the internet. And so it's going to be a different experience being able to sit there and you know look someone in the eyes and actually have a conversation and just happen to be podcasting it. So we're very excited about that. This episode of the Trombone Retreat is sponsored by Houghton Horns. Houghton Horns carries a wide variety of instruments, the exclusive dealer of Tyne instruments in the United States, and they have a big catalog of Shires instruments as well. Or if you need a Greg Black mouthpiece, that's your place to go to as well. Visit HoughtonHorns.com and use the code RETREAT to get 10% off. Again, 10% off with the code RETREAT. I hope you enjoy this interview with John Sebastian Barrow. Your light looks great. Yeah, one light right above me just kind of gave me a little bit of a halo, but... That's how I see you. (laughs) I know. Whoa, you rearranged your room. Oh, did I tell you what I did? Yeah, you're, you're in where your bedroom was, right? Yeah, I realized that the biggest room in my house was my bedroom, and all I did was go in there and sleep at night. 
and I spent most of my time in the smallest room, which was my studio. And I was like, I think I was hanging out with Hakeem late one night and he had this idea and I'm like, that's crazy. And Hakeem then I couldn't a, get out of my head. He's an He's an ideasman. Ideasman. Shout out to Hakeem. So, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Sebastian. How the turntables. So let's jump right into it. So obviously we're following up on our two part adventure of in- interviewing each other separated by a couple of months, obviously. But the time has come. It is the witching hour to interview <laughs> John Sebastian Vera. So thank you again. Why don't we dive in? Why don't we start with your history? Let's start with John as a young man living in Northeast Texas. Okay. So you're from Highland Village. Highland Village. Yeah. It's a small town suburb of, of like Denton, uh, like, like 30 minutes north of Dallas. And were you born here? Yeah. I was born, I was born in Denton. In Flow Hospital, it's no longer there. Shut her down, and yeah, you know, I, you know, grew up in Texas most of my life. I, I lived in Maine, Portland, Maine, for a year when I was three. I don't remember much other than breaking my arms on the monkey bars, or as my mom said, I said it at the time, the mumpy bars. I, I broke my arm on the mumpy bars, and yeah, you know, kind of grew up in a little bit of a bubble. It's a nice, like, middle to upper middle class. Really nice community along a lake. Mom was a school teacher, and my dad was a, a lighting designer for did landscape lighting and, and a lot of that kind of stuff, and kind of taught himself that uh, craft before you could really study it, and was really you know successful doing that. So your mom, she was a teacher. What kind of teacher was she? Uh, elementary school mainly, and she was like everyone's favorite teacher, and it, it was I was always you know, Rosie's son or, or Miss, Mrs. Vera's son in school because she was in the building pretty much everywhere from, you know, kindergarten through sixth grade. She was in the building and all of my teachers knew who she was. So I can relate <laughs> to that of being a son of a teacher as well. So why, why did you go into music? Was it forced upon you by your family or was it just something that you did? And how did we find our path to the trombone? It was never forced. It, it kind of felt natural. Uh, so my mom is a pianist. Uh, she actually studied in, in college as well. And she's actually incredible, really. And I'm not just saying that because she's my mom. She's just such a natural musician and, you know, perfect pitch and plays everything by ear. And, you know, she's not going to go play like a, you know, major concerto or anything, but like just playing lyrically and musically. And she's like, you know, famous in her little <laughs> community in a lot of ways. And you know, her grandmother was the church pianist also. And so I was taking piano lessons when I was young. Not quite my cup of tea. Um, mm-hmm. doing, playing more than one note at once was never the easiest thing for me. <laughs> but I learned a lot there and, you know, it just became natural. You know, you go to sixth grade and you choose your instrument and you, you, you write down three things and wrote down saxophone because that's what the cool kids played and then wrote down trumpet. And then I couldn't think of a third thing. So I just wrote down the first name of an instrument that came to my head, which was trombone. And I didn't even really remember what it was. And I think they just needed trombone players. So they brought one out and like, let me play it. I was like, wow. Yeah. I think there's so many people who have that path to the trombone. It's like, I chose other instruments and there were already enough drummers and trumpet players. So I ended up playing the trombone. I can attest to your mom being uh, a great pianist. Uh, 
I don't know if it was a quarantine project, but I mean, that's kind of when I got hip to what she was doing on, on Facebook at least once a week. She'll post something of her playing a hymn or kind of like a sing-songy sort of tune. And it's, yeah, she's a very natural player. And she kept being like, there's there's thousands of people listening to every video. I don't I don't understand why. I'm like, mom, it's beautiful. <laughs> and people really want to hear music right now. You know? Yeah, no kidding. So you probably, I imagine you started out the trombone at a normal trombone age of something like sixth grade, right? Yeah, and 11. So fast forward along the track, which is Texas Music Education, which is excellent for those who don't know. It really is. I think Texas music ed- education is probably the best in the country. Hence why we have so many trombone players who have Texas roots. But so you go on and you go to Marcus High School, right? Boom. Look at you. Know my high school name. I know. Wait, did you did you do research for this podcast for the first time? I I do research. I do my own form of research, but I had but since I'm running the show here, I had to write everything down instead of just keeping it in my noggin. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I went to Marcus High School, and, you know, I call it the Texas band machine, and it's one of those things that you don't really appreciate until you leave, how, you know, there's a lot of money into the programs, and and there's a lot of positives and negatives about, you know, people that are aware of Texas music education, but there's a lot of positives, and, and a huge positive was it was just normal to have lessons every week from when I started in sixth grade through high school, something that in a lot of areas of the country, like here, for example, it's not a normal thing for everyone to take lessons. But, you know, these are well-funded programs. A lot of it comes from the money generated from football, money generated from marching band as connected through that. And then there's just this huge culture through the Texas Music Educators Association that's just made it really strong and competitive, which, you know, brings out good things sometimes. Yeah. And so, yeah, Marcus High School. And, and it was one of those things that you know, if you would have told me I was when I was 11, when I started that I'd still be doing this and getting to do it for a living and play and teach music and travel around the world, like never, ever would have believed you. And it was just one of those things that art's imperfectible, right? So, it's one of those things I never got bored at, you know, I, I couldn't just figure it out. There's always a new challenge and it was always so rewarding. And I think it was about, I think when I was a sophomore in high school, is when it just clicked. I'm like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. My, my best friend growing up, Justin Brown, he actually runs the Aspen <laughs> festival now, bassoon player, you know, he's first year all stay as a freshman or second year all stay as a freshman first rest of years with Juilliard. And he was just always that guy I was chasing in a lot of ways. And, you know, he's getting lessons with college professors in high school. And I'm like, oh, cool. I, I could do that. And he's like auditioning for the greater Dallas youth orchestra. I'm like, oh, cool. I'll do that too. And I love the guy. I still love him. And he's been such a huge impact on my life for those reasons. And just, you know, when you're that young, you just slowly realize what you're capable of. And you follow the passion, you follow the work and little victories happen. And you're just like, oh, wow. And you get, you just gather these little nuggets of confidence, right? And it just became this thing. And yeah, I mean, I got in trouble in high school for like, you know, I made all state and then the next year I told my band directors I didn't want to do marching band and it was like, you know, I kidnapped their child or something. It, they were not pleased and they put me in the remedial band, like the fourth band for the entire year, thinking like it'd be punishment and it would just like make me 
not want to do it and just change my mind. And honestly, what he had me do was, and I joke about it with, with him now. I think he even listens to this podcast and huge influence. Alan Harkey was a huge influence on, on my life. Trombone player, great band director in Texas. He would have me record rhythm sheets, just like a long etude long piece with just rhythms on any note with a metronome. And if I made a single mistake, I'd have to redo it. And that was so good for me mm. to just focus because, you know, getting someone that age to focus on something for that long is is harder and harder. And that taught me so many things. And I, and I still look back on doing that kind of stuff. But I knew I wanted to focus on auditions and not, you know, be doing marching bands in 98 degrees heat every day. So, so were you able to stay out of marching band for the rest of your time then? Yeah. Just uh, for my, for my, yeah, senior year. Yeah. Now anyone, I, I went to a school in Michigan that had a really competitive marching program. And I think anyone who um, went to a school like that, most of them are in the South, but there are some peppered throughout the North as well. And my school, in, if you wanted to have a chance at even being in the top wind ensemble, you had to play in marching band. There was no choice. You know, yeah, as I as I get older, I, I understand their perspective because, you know, you, they don't want to start a precedent with like, you know, their best players wanting to do that. And they, you know, the, the most visible part of their job is the marching band. So they obviously want their best players there. So, you know, I get it. Um, yeah, and it, and it and funds the whole, it funds everything. Funds everything. But it was definitely a social hit for me because, you know, all my friends were in that top band. All my friends were in marching band I and I had to like rearrange my whole schedule and never get to like see them my senior year. So, it, it was something to get used to, but it was something I was committed to. It's like, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to practice. I'm going to do these auditions. Well, you are uh, persistent. I know that about you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I believe it that you that you stuck it out. So, while you're in high school... You start studying with John Bowles. Why don't you tell us a little bit about John Bowles, your experience with him, and maybe name drop a couple other people that studied with him? Because, I mean, he, for a high school teacher, he probably has taught more prominent trombone players than anyone in the country, I would guess. I mean, you could definitely put him up with anyone. And, you know, he John Bowles uh, is kind of one of these classic Texas teachers where He's like the guy you want to study with if you're anywhere in that North Texas region. And I was lucky enough to to sneak into his his studio. And I think at one time he had like 80 to 100 students, like something insane, mm. like full-time job, always prepared, always had integrity, always gave you his full focus. But really, he became a second dad to me growing up. He's fantastic. He is a fantastic bass trombonist, beautiful sound, and is just so good at w- working with young people and and I'm, yeah, I'm going to get to work with him this summer at a festival. He started the Festival of Trombones in Texas um, that I'll be teaching at anyone down there. Um, and I'd love to get him up the retreat sometime. But he's so good at simplifying and, and getting you to focus on just the right things, sound and moving air. And, you know, Brian Hecht was one of his students around the same time that we talked about on his interview and Zach Bond and mm-hmm. all his students, you know, always making all state and everything. But really, he was a second dad to me, you know, I could talk to him about anything and he's always giving you that, that father is, it still falls in that role when I hang out with him now. He, he just, he can't help but like look out for you kind Mm -hmm. of thing and and encourage you and support you. So, I mean, I know there's more names for sure that we could drop about John Bowles, but that gives you a little taste of just what's going on there. Just the numbers alone. I mean, to have 
so many students and I've never heard a singular bad word about him. I've only heard amazing things. I met him once in passing. I think um, it was at an ITF. He used to run it. Yeah, he used to be. Yeah, he, I mean, he used to run it. And was he encouraging of you pursuing a musical path? Where did he, he encourage you to audition? And was there any reasoning? Uh, he, he's the type of guy, and I think it's the, the best mindset for a teacher. If, if you have a student that's precocious like that, that wants to do it, your job as a teacher, and I think both of our opinions, is to make it very clear what is required to get this goal, how difficult this goal can be, and, you know, paint paint a real situation because, you know, it's not the safest thing no. to go into that profession. And he always did that very clearly. And I, I wanted, you know, I was going for it, swinging for the fences, you know, auditioning at all the big conservatories and got, got into a few. It really came down to, I think it was like Indiana. I got a full scholarship to San Francisco Conservatory to study with Mark Lawrence, who I just idolized and listened to his recordings all the time. And then, you know, SMU in Dallas with John Kitzman. And for so long, I wanted to go to California or just like escape, you know, or just get out of this bubble that I'd grown up in. But the thought of like going to a really small school, mostly grad students in a state I'd never been to, it was a little intimidating. And, you know, I visited SMU and I just heard about all of John Kitzman's successful students, all these students going to Juilliard for grad school. And I was like, oh, well, and then I, I went to like an orientation. I met a, a girl that I thought was cute and ended up being my girlfriend for like <laughs> half a year and, you know, making all the wrong decisions when you're 18. But, you know, it ended up being a great place for me. Yeah. I mean, talk about another teacher in school that's just pumped out trombone players consistently for 30 plus years. You know, it's definitely on the radar for any serious classical trombonist to go to a place like SMU. And it was, it just so happened to be in your backyard. Yeah. It was close. It, it was one of those things where it ended up being like far enough away, but close enough to home where you can like go home on the weekends and mom Dude. does laundry. And <laughs> I was just going to say that <laughs> bring your laundry and get a home cooked meal. What was it like studying with John Kitzman? You know, I think a lot of people have perceptions of, of, of you know, I, I still don't even feel comfortable saying John. I know. I'm Mr. Off. Kitzman. You know, I have so much respect for him. And I think from the outside, a lot of people see a very stern, tough guy. And he is. And, you know, he went to West Point. He's very disciplined, very mentally tough. But underneath all that is because he has this fierce, passionate caring for his students. He taught me how to be a man in so many ways, taught me how to be prepared and show up on time. Anyone that's ever studied with him, you don't show up to, you know, trombone class and not know your role in every single chord and listen to the recording, multiple recordings many times and be able to, to run it. You're not coming to learn it. You know, you learn that very quickly. You also learn very quickly not to show up hungover on a Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Um, <laughs> which have you have you learned your lesson full time, Sebastian? <sighs> we don't have to talk about the present moment. Uh, None of us have. <laughs> yeah, extraordinary musician. You know, principal trombone in the Dallas Symphony for I think 42 years. Yeah. Something insane without without an assistant. I know, and that's a major orchestra, and I have an assistant. I'm playing every piece. And just that kind of that classic old school in a lot of ways, just what a tenor voice should sound like, um, not wanting it to get too big and having color and clarity and 
always being musical and you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, he went, he was in West point with my teacher and right. That was my first hearing about him was, was my teacher, Don Harwood talking about John Kitzman. Oh, you know, like there are so many great Tremont players at West point when I was there. And the reasoning being, I mean, partially it's a stable job. It's a very good job, but the timing this was the seventies, late, late sixties, early seventies. And, um, there was a little thing happening called the Vietnam war. And a lot of these musicians were like, well, I need, I need to get into a service band because if you got into a service band, you were inside of the military and you were, um, safe from having to go over to Southeast Asia. Not a bad option. Nope. Not a bad option. So those auditions there, I mean, they're competitive today but i can only imagine how competitive they were for that 10 year span you know everyone wanting to get into a band just to be safe oh god yeah talk about a, like a life or death audition i know it's crazy it's crazy oh we think we have pressure now when we take auditions. i know no kidding <laughs> oh yeah so another thing I, I know about john kitzman or his students rather well i suppose him too is he has a little i'm gonna call it quirk that all of his students subscribe to, and that is taking the nipple off the end of the slide. The the nipple? I've never called it a nipple before. The ru- the little rubber stopper wow. doohickey. What, what that's do you how you it? see it. Yeah. Wow, slide slide nipple. Slipple. Yeah, that that's become lore. You know, and not everyone does it. Most of us do it. I still do it. I, um, okay, I name one Kitsman student who doesn't do it. <laughs> Oh, when I when I see a fellow Kitsman student that doesn't do it, I, I joke like I'm going to take a picture of this slide and send it to him. Oh, that happened. That happened recently. We were maybe it was Jeff D. We yeah. we were playing quartets with Jeff D. I was in Pittsburgh. This was a couple months ago. And yeah, you said you said I'm going to send this to Mr. Kitsman because he had he had the rubber stop on the end. I've heard that he could very accurately turn with his back to you or covering his eyes or whatever tell the difference between when it was on and when it was off. Okay. So here's the thing. And yeah, and he would, and he'd have a collection of the rubber stoppers and, um, (laughs) okay. So here's the thing, because I think this very niche topic is kind of polarizing. And I think there's an argument both ways. So if you play with a sound with lots of overtones and you're going for a lot of brilliance in your sound, and you notice this especially on lighter instruments. Not as much on bass trombone, but you you can. I notice it like crazy on my alto trombone. You know, everything makes a difference. So, how much of a difference it makes, sometimes it's marginal, mm-hmm. sometimes you can't hear it. But if you if you tend to play with more color in your sound, there's more of a chance you're going to notice this ringing it's literally you know something rubber that's s- slowing down vibrations in in some way and so it kind of feels that way about any kind of thing on your horn like pe- people putting those like leather pencil pencil holders on or certain any places that your hands aren't already touching he he doesn't like that and you know i i've always kind of had a naturally darker sound i think but mm-hmm, yeah i want to have those colors so you know i play yellow everything i take I mean, I don't have a slide lock on. Like, I I want brilliance, especially playing in Pittsburgh, because that's how we play here. It's just brilliance, brilliance, brilliance. Bright is beautiful. <laughs> Bright with depth. <laughs> um, so that's how I feel about that. So, but if you play with a dark sound, you probably won't notice it. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting to me. I mean, 
on one hand, it's like, oh, come on, that's silly. But on the other hand, like I've done, I've done and done stuff to my horn and tried horns where it's like, oh, like I'm going to put this like millimeter sized piece of metal and weld it to this one spot. Cause there's a node here and you're like, whoa, that makes such a difference. And it's like, I mean, so it, calling some calling, uh, taking the rubber stopper off the, the nipple ridiculous is a little hip hypocritical on my part because I've subscribed this to even more ridiculous things. Let's put it that way. You get through SMU. You're sounding like a bajillion bucks. I assume. Yeah. So you audition at grad school. Where do you audition? Oh gosh, where did I audition? I I think the the classic like Juilliard, Manhattan, Cleveland, San Francisco, that kind of thing. I think I had, you know, I up till that point in my life, I kind of got away with things on talent in a lot of ways. I think I never had this work ethic that was just like. 24 yeah. 7 i loved music i loved learning about music i loved doing well but i was ne- it took me a while to learn how to to be that way and to be that hungry and, and, it, and i'm going to college out of this bubble i grew up you know pretty conservative and i'm in college and there's girls and there's like oh this is what a beer tastes like and and changes adapting to john kitsman and so i had a lot of holes in my plan um Oh, I just sound Southern just then. My playing. Holes um, in my playing. Holes in my playing. And, you know, I auditioned at these schools and I think I was a little too comfortable. And I was, you know, like 40 kids audition each year and they'll accept like one in each spot. And I was like runner up at like each one. I was like waitlisted. And that was brutal for me. That was, but it was like a huge gut punch that I needed that I didn't know I needed. And I, I was thinking about, quitting or switching to like I would I've always been fascinated with music therapy I was like looking into that it's like one of the hardest things I've ever been through honestly <laughs> at the time right um because it was like my whole identity right and then I got a call I got a random call from a guy named Ed Zadrozny and he was a professor at the University of Akron go zips and he got my go zips uh rubber capital of the world thank you very much and he had gotten my my info from I think Steve Witzer from the Cleveland Institute because I was I either did so bad on one of the theory tests or something or <laughs> had gotten in or something and he was like hey like come study here and be a grad assistant we'll pay you you want to pay a tuition you study with me and my first answer was like wait where's where's the universe where's Akron Where, where's that <laughs> and you um, still ask that question I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> I ended up living fairly close to it. And it ended up being one of the, the best things. And the, he's amazing. Like, he was, you know, the first call guy with Cleveland. And he had one assistant principal in National at one point in his life and turned it down to try to save a marriage. And he was just like this total, totally blue collar, like, I'm going to bust my ass type. And exactly what I needed. And he just kind of recentered me for a year and did so much for me. And I got to play with the Akron Symphony all year and Canton Symphony and get professional experience. I was playing with Chris Oliver, like, all year, who was principal's in those orchestras and then shortly after one second trombone in the Dallas Symphony, world-class player and just got my confidence back, got my swagger back. And, and he was just super encouraging about me wanting to try again to get into one of these conservatories or, or live in New York city. So was it always a goal? I mean, it sounds like it was a goal to be on one of the coasts. Yeah. I think in my head, I always wanted to experience New York city. Yeah. 
especially after watching Felicity, which, you know, not gonna lie, it's one of my favorite shows of all time. Fight and me. We, and we um, just lost 90% of our audience because we are too old and they do not know what you're talking about. It's okay. It was one of JJ, it's JBJ Abrams, like first show who you sh- should all know. Anyways, <laughs> um, that was like my false, it's like what f- people thought New York City was like friends. You know, it's like my false vision of what New York was like. But I always wanted to experience it and finally worked out. You know, I got into the Mass College of Music and where you teach now, which is Go weird. Narwhals. Go Fighting Narwhals. Mm-hmm. I had to look that up. It's true. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't believe it when a student told me that the unofficial mascot of the new school, which is the over parent of the Manus, Manus College of Music, is the Narwhals. Of course it is. So, Manus, you went to the old Manus. For, for those who don't know, Manus is now located on 13th Street and 6th Avenue, between 5th and 6th Avenue, which is down in the village. And it used to be located for decades on 85th Street. 85th Street, is that right? Yeah, 85th, yeah. 85th Street in Amsterdam. And like in a, like a, basically an apartment building. Yeah, it was like an old mansion. <laughs> That's the best way to describe it. It, it, it. In some ways, it reminds me of the old Curtis in Philly because it's just like an old building. And it's like, this obviously wasn't a practice room. This was someone's bedroom. <laughs> and some person donated the building to Manus years and years ago. The pluses of it being on 85th in Amsterdam, in my opinion, are you're on the boy side, you're close to Lincoln Center. You can walk to Lincoln Center. The negatives are that building, the, the school outgrew the building. And so, mm-hmm. the, you know, now it's down in the village, which is further away from Lincoln Center, but it's in the village, which is pretty darn cool. How was your experience at Manus? How was it moving to New York City, you know, going from a place like Dallas, which is obviously a city, but nowhere in the United States is quite like New York as far as city life. So how was that transition for you? Oh, man. I mean, it's an insane place. The second you go inside, it's just like, okay, we're in it now. Yeah. You know, it's this mad. It, 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 was, it was so good for me in so many ways. I mean, I basically feel like I spent my 20s in New York City. And what a place to spend your 20s. You know, you're experiencing cultures from all the all over the world, meeting incredible people hearing music from all over the world, all the greatest orchestras, all the, every type of musician coming through. It's always so different than people. And until you live there, it's, it's always different than you think it's going to be. It's, it's a lot grittier. It's a lot, you know, poor. quality of life can be tough. Poor. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, spending, you, you run out of money very quick. Being a music major <laughs> in New York City, being a musician in New York City is not easy. But a really good experience for me, but it also teaches you to be tough and, and rely on yourself more because no one's necessarily going to just like hand you things or, or, or do things for you. You kind of got to have build your own support system within yourself in a lot of ways, but that serves you and, and makes you tough. And it, it, it gave me kind of like this hunger to apply anywhere else I go. One thing I like that you tell our students at the Tremone retreat is your roommate when you got to Manus was Mike Ingstrom, who's a fantastic trombone player of all genres in New York City. And you met Mike at Haim Avitzer's trombone festival, the summer trombone workshop. So it was like, hey, we're both going to Manus. Why don't we be roommates? And you guys are still best friends, or I don't know, best friends. Yeah. We're among your best friends, because I'm your best friend. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> I, I, I use that best label too much and it's like best is I guess supposed to be only used for one person, right? But eh. I feel like I have so many best friends, but 
Yeah, man. And that's the cool thing. It's like such a small community, right? Like it's a huge city and there's so many trombonists, but you you pretty much know every trombonist or you know someone that knows everyone. And yeah, Times Workshop, which is fantastic, was a huge inspiration to start the one we did. And yeah, you meet someone and he was already a, a student at Manus and, and it was just a natural fit to be roommates and I ended up being best man at his wedding. I just visited his second child this past a couple weekends ago and I, oh, I I love the guy. And that's the thing, you just, you know, lifelong friends or as you get older, it's it's something that you value more and more. Yeah, and I met Mike through you and we'll get into our crossing of paths. But yeah, the, the one thing... Sebastian says at the retreat, he'll tell students about, you never know the connections you'll make at this thing, at this, at the trombone retreat. Um, and he'll, you'll tell, Hey, I made this connection with who's one a guy who's one of my best friends. And we ended up being roommates and all stuff. I met him at a festival very similar to this. And we actually have seen a couple of people go on and stay in touch and be roommates. And they met at the trombone retreat. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, we're seeing it passed forward to the next generation, which I think is pretty cool. So you're at Manus, you're studying with a couple of okay Tremonists by the name of Jim Markey and Dave Finlayson. Tell me about that. Started with Dave for the first couple of years and, you know, he was, he was, he was great for me. He, he kind of built up my confidence again. He was good at sensing what you needed and he was just so encouraging with me and telling me like, dude, like, you can do this. You're doing a lot of good things. And like, you just need to do this and this. And I, I needed to hear that. And I think Dave kind of, you know, he teaches so many students that come through New York. And I think he, he kind of subtly keeps his distance a little bit at first and, and waits to see that you're buying in. And the second he, he sees that you care and, and that you respect him and that you're doing it, he'll give everything to you. And he was so thoughtful and did all these extra things for me. But man, holy crap, can you play the trombone? Yeah, no kidding. And, I mean, he, him just like demonstrating things, especially one lesson, just demonstrating all the Mahler 5 excerpts. It was just like, I'm just going to sit here and record this and listen. I was just talking with a friend the other day about, you know, a principal. He said, a principal trombonist lives and dies by their second trombonist. And there are a lot of cases of kind of, I'm going to say it, subpar second trombonist. I won't name anyone, of course. Um because I think it's like, maybe they view it's like, oh, I'm not as important. But it's like, if they could only see how important the bass tremonis and principal tremonis view that that crucial center part. I mean, we could name a million great second tremon players that prove that, you know, they really do make the section really sing. Dave Finlayson is one of them for sure. Meat of the sandwich. The meat of the sandwich. Oh, get, I still remember just getting to play like, like we'd be playing the Till Owen Spiegel excerpt. And he'd play the second part with me and was like, this is the easiest this has ever felt in my life. Just like, yeah, he's like, does all the work for you. Great and player. also on a side note, if, if you've never seen his photography, um, check it out. It's, it's incredible. Especially when they, the New York Philharmonic got to go to North Korea, oh, he man. was able to take a lot of pictures. And there's one especially that still gets me that there was a violinist from the orchestra that went to give a, a masterclass to like young violin students at in North Korea at like a music school and she was also Korean and, and she start she was playing for the first time and David just decided to go along and this this young girl was just so overwhelmed hearing something this beautiful she'd never heard anything like that before she just started crying 
Mm. And so he has this amazing photo of her crying in the background of this woman playing. It was just, oh, it's really cool. So when in your time at Manus did you switch over to studying with Jim Markey? Uh, after two years, I did, did the master's and then did the, the professional studies mm-hmm. diploma. And it was good because you just didn't take any class. You took lessons and you, you know, played in ensembles, basically. Right. And through, I mean, not necessarily through studying with him, but through a connection to him, you got to be on one of his albums in Trombone Choir. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah. I mean, Jim Markey was incredible for me. And it was, I think it was the time in my life where I was starting to be mature enough to realize what I needed to be doing and how seriously I needed to be taking it. And he was one of the first people that were just like, you know, we talked about on his podcast, but like he was the perfect combination of demanding, but encouraging. He, he expected me to do well. And, and the fact that he expected it from me, like, I was like, wow, he must think I can, I can do this. And then through that, I, I started believing I could do it. Mm-hmm. And he, our minds worked very similar in a lot of ways. Cause he can just dissect things and really explain things on a technical level if he needs to. And sometimes I just needed that. And then sometimes he'd be like, dude, okay, why, why aren't you playing? Why aren't you playing this musically now? <laughs> But yeah, he he asked me to play on his solo CD on bass in the trombone choir. And, you know, I felt like it's the equivalent of, I always called it, remember the, like the dream team in the Olympics, like oh, yeah. basketball, and they always like picked one college player to to be able to go play and like Christian Leitner or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt like that, that college student. So it was like, it was Joe Alessi. It was the whole Phil section. It was like the Met section. And some of like the real top New York freelancers and I'm just like grad student and I'm just like walking in there just like, no one notice me, please. I'm just going to try to play the notes. And I'm like, <laughs> I still remember, I might mention this in the interview with, with Joe coming up at the ITF, but like there was like cutoffs where we we're on opposite ends and Joe Lessie's like making eye contact with me to like cut it off. And it was just like the most intimidating. <laughs> I felt like he saw into my soul. He's like, you will cut off now. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so good being around him and just hearing him and seeing the professionalism and i'm so honored to be on that i still can't believe i got to do that that was really cool what i mean so that was was that your first like professional recording thing uh i guess something like definitely playing on a trombone album yeah, was there anything that surprised you about the process the recording process i mean everyone was just on top of it but i mean they were they're also pretty laid back but you know, they took it seriously. I've never seen Joe Lessie not take something seriously. And that's, that's probably why true. his career has been so well. He, do, he doesn't just mail it in. He's like, okay, let's do this. And he's a leader, you know? And I don't know. I was just trying to hang. I was just trying to, you know, observe. And, and also at the same time, you got to remind yourself like, Hey, you're here for a reason and you're, you're fully capable of doing this. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and, and going through those experiences and surviving them, like anytime you get to play with a major orchestra or win a job or anything, it's just like these little notches, like give you that much more confidence where for me, I've always been like, I think my mind always catches up with my abilities later. Like I always have to prove it to myself first before I believe sometimes, which is usually the opposite for what actually helps, but things like that really meant a lot to me. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, those are experiences that you'll remember forever. It's because it, 
was with such high profile people. And it was like the first time being around such high profile people as an equal. I think we all remember those experiences, you know, and never take it for, we never take it for granted that sometimes it's like, Hey, I am one of those people now. And, uh Oh, like I, I have, I have, I have to carry this torch now in, in a certain way and make sure that I don't drop it like a, like an asshole. <laughs> I remember, I, I remember being right next to Paul Pollard for that whole, re- that whole recording session and just being like, holy crap, that's Paul Pollard. And, and just like years later, I'm like getting drunk on a boat with him. And it's just like, it's like, oh, it's like, there, there might've been back to guy. There might've been backflips involved, um, off that boat. We're not allowed to talk. We're not. I, that's right. We have a gag order from, from Dr. Pollard. So yeah, there weren't backflips, wink, wink, or so, video evidence. Oh, yeah, that's true. I think we're at the time in the timeline where a young gentleman named Nick Schwartz waltzes into your life. Waltzes, saunters. I play in a dance orchestra. Come on. Oh, that's good. That's good. Now to what the interview is really about. <laughs> well, I can say our love story. You don't remember this. I. You say we met in New York. I think you came to take an audition, and I helped you get into Manus. That's, okay, yeah, that did happen. Oh, that's right. I remember this. Yep. It was for the Phil audition, I think. Yep, and it was with uh, Ed Vinson. Right. Yep, that did happen. You big-timed me so hard. You're like, I'm Nick Schwartz. Don't look directly into my eyes, please. Walk behind me, and thank you. Yeah, so we met briefly then, but that almost barely counts. When we first started hanging, actually, you had taken the audition for the Huntsville Symphony on Principal Tremone, and you were in the finals. Huh. Huh, huh, huh. So it was the second Tremone audition. Yes. Okay. Uh, what's uh, Katie? Katie Curran. Yep. Katie won. Yeah, Not yeah. to be confused like with one of my George first Curran's wife, Katie Curran. Um, right. <laughs> so uh, through that process, you were added to the sub list. And, you know, we had, I think we had like played a gig or two in New York at this point, because I was, I was in New York, uh, I won the ballet. Then you started subbing down in Huntsville, and I want you I want you to tell the podcast appropriate version of the story of the hot tub. Uh, the almost hot tub. We have a lot of hot tubs in our in our it's, history. That's true. Hot tubs bring people together. We were playing. Was it Brahms two? Brahms four. Brahms four. Oh man! And so I think that's the only thing we were playing on the program. Yes. And it was a whole program, and so, you know, you don't come in till late. And so, we didn't have to rehearse much. We had a lot of free time. And Huntsville Symphony at that time was cool because they, they fly you down. You get your own hotel room. It's You know, it's cool. And we ended up just hanging out because, you know, we, we kind of knew each other. And we were playing in the same section all week, and we were off the whole time. And I think one of the first stops was, like, you go to the liquor store, and you pick up stuff for the week. And mm-hmm. <laughs> you grab, like, some big handle. And like, oh, it's going to be that kind of week. Okay. All right. And I think we're hanging out and we're like, we were just having a nice time and we were feeling good about the, all the rehearsals were going well. We were sounding really good, getting a lot of positive feedback. And at some point before the show, we were like, oh, you know, were we drinking? I don't think we were drinking. Um, I think we had, I think we had like a beer or something. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I, I tend to not drink before shows, but maybe I did this time. Um, like, you know what? Let's let, you know, it'd be great. Let's, there's a hot tub. Let's go, let's go, let's go chill in the hot tub. Like, I think we got robes on or something. Oh yeah, we were like, bathing suits and robes, whole thing. Like going down, like, okay, let's go. And like, we get down to the hallway to walk down and we literally see people in tuxes 
carrying their instruments, leaving the hotel, like going to the concert. Like, hmm. <laughs> well, it, and I, that didn't even deter us right away. I was like, I think we have enough time. Like, we don't play. We don't play until the end. Anyway, we don't play until <laughs> the last piece. And then, like, someone in the orchestra was like, "What? What are you guys doing? Like, you know, it's like seven ten or something." <laughs> <laughs> and the, so the concert starts in like 20 minutes and the first half was like a little overture and like a 20 minute concerto, super short for his half, something like that. And I was, and we started thinking like, Oh, this is probably a bad idea. <laughs> we looked like such freaking morons. Unbelievable. We, we both needed, we both needed an adult in that situation. Yeah. We, we probably would have been late. I still from, remember from that week there because that that symphony was having a conductor search at the time, so like all the people were guests that were technically auditioning, and I'm not going to say the guy's name, but he did one of the like the lamest moves I've ever seen. Oh, where he was trying he was trying to show off that he had Brahms memorized, and so he walked out, you know, for the second half, you know, audience applauds. He he walks to the podium and then like looks over, and has one of the tech guys come and grab the score from the stand and walk off oh, just to make genius. it really obvious that he's not using the score, like making it look like it was natural. And the audience was like, Ooh, yeah. wow. <laughs> but then, but then there was like many moments throughout that orchestra throughout that symphony where he like gives a giant cue, like two measures too soon. Oh, it was, it was like, okay, buddy. <laughs> All right, buddy. Yeah. He, uh, it, when he did that, it's like, you could, you could, hear 65 musicians eyes roll <laughs> like oh come on get over yourself so it's weird you know um on my end of things like that time and kind of subsequent times of you coming down and playing with Huntsville that actually began our friendship even though we both lived in New York and then we started hanging out more in New York even though we knew each other at this point I guess having a week where we literally had nothing else to do in a different place and we started hanging out and get to know each other I think that kind of accelerated our friendship. We, we set sail. We did on the, on the friendship. On the friendship. We did. Absolutely. I still remember, I think one of the first times hanging out with you and I went back to my girlfriend at the time was like, I, I play quartets with the, the bass remotes, the New York city ballet today. It was really, really cool. Like that, it meant a lot to me, you know, it was like, wow, like this is guy is like a real player. You know, I you gotta, gotta pass some crumbs to the low people. <laughs> <laughs> so, couple months later probably at this point we're close friends we're hanging out regularly and one of the one of the um, not one of the reasons but one of the helping points of us hanging out regular regularly is you still had a, a job at manis in the recording department so you'd, you'd be there i guess most days and i lived at that time walking distance to manis so you would come over before or after or sometimes both and we'd do some playing and hanging out and <laughs> go to shake shack or something like that but so you I were, learned a lot from that job. Yeah, yeah, I bet. So around this time, you start working up for an audition that would change your life. <laughs> you didn't know it at the time, but start working up for the audition Pittsburgh Opera. Tell us about that experience. Was there, I mean, because you had taken auditions before, obviously. Was there something different about that audition that helped you rise to the top? <laughs> you know, I had, it, it was the time in life I had just finished my second year uh, at the professional studies. So it was like getting real. And I, I had been taking a smattering of auditions, varying levels of success, advancing at a few, 
and I think there's a big there's a big something to be said for momentum. You know, taking a few auditions in a row tends to help. Mm. And you know, there's always some luck involved. I had never auditioned for an opera before. There were some unique excerpts. There were some excerpts that were very common. And I think there's some luck involved too, which I'll get to. But I think it's one of those things where opera really suited my playing and I didn't realize it. It's a it's a different type of animal and it's very vocal and, and you can be rewarded for different types of things. And yeah, I took this audition, you know, prepared. I'd never been to Pittsburgh before, crashed with a buddy and... You know, I, I I still remember I did the first round and after the first round, 100% convinced, 100% convinced I did not advance. And it's one of those things where they text you later. Oh, um, nice and like yeah, yeah, they don't give you your fate in front of all these oh, strangers. I hate that. You, know? you guys are losers. You can leave. <laughs> but I was the only one that advanced the entire morning. And so that was shocking, but it gave me a little confidence. I was like, okay, all right. And, you know, you you get excited to advance and then you see all these people got advanced to the second round, like auto advanced. And you're like, damn it. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> been there. So there's like a ton of people there and, you know, you play longer and they wanted to hear me again. And you get, I got to play with like the principal trumpet. I think there was some, might've been some sight reading involved. And then another, another round. So there's four rounds. It went to like 11 o'clock at night. I ended up being me and this other guy, and I did not play a perfect audition, even close. But I guess there's something they saw, and there's something about, I, I think there's luck involved in every audition. There was an excerpt that, in translating the excerpts they gave me to my audition book, I left out for some reason. It was that Otel excerpt, which is just the chromatic scale, yeah. which is, you know, not easy, and something that either get you know yeah you try to you try to nail it yeah if it goes off the rails it's pretty much off the rails it's hard to recover yeah and i forgot to learn it basically <laughs> and just <whoop>. that audition <laughs> i i mean i would have basically had to do that and that audition there was like 20 something excerpts is the only one they didn't ask for oh my goodness and there's a little luck involved in everything and there was one moment where I played the first hotel excerpt, which is harder in my opinion. And they, the principal trumpet like leaned over to the music director. Oh, do you want to hear this other one? And I was literally like shooting laser beams. No, no, (laughs) no, you don't. (laughs) And he, and he thought for a minute, which felt like a year. And he's like, you know, I think I'm okay. And, you know, had to play, I still remember I had to play Tannhauser like four times. Just because they wanted to test my endurance. Yeah, that will do it. And I think. <laughs> and, and yeah, long story long, at, at, you know, it was down to me and, and another player. I think he went on to be principal in Rochester. Um, really good player. Again, convinced I didn't win. And it's it's fascinating being in that situation, especially one of the first times. And you you're battling so much internal monologue. So much negativity, like it's like a fight, not just physically, but just like you belong here, you're capable of doing this. You know, that's why there's so much mental preparation you gotta do beforehand, you know, mm-hmm. believing that you're capable of doing it so your mind doesn't try to like it, doesn't have this like dysfunction in your mind where wait, I don't think I should be here, but I'm here. 
and then you're fighting all this stuff. And yeah, so final round happened and, you know, I was going first every round. So the guy got to hear every mistake I made and then go in there and play it better. You know, the wall's really thin and I felt like he did. And I was like, you know, I'm happy I got this far. I didn't expect it. And, you know, they were deliberating and it wasn't quick. It turned into like 15 minutes, turned into like 30 minutes, turned into like 45 minutes. I was like, and the longer it went on, the, the more I realized like, oh, maybe I do have a chance at this thing. And I still feel bad because I, I was sitting there with the other guy just telling him the whole time like, oh, dude, you clearly won. Like, <laughs> that's, <laughs> I still feel bad about that because I, I believed it. And then they came out and told me that, you know, it was me. And I, it took me like two months afterwards to still not think that they made a mistake or they were going to call me and say like, oh, just kidding. We mixed up your numbers or something. You know? Yeah. Well, from there, how long was it until you moved to Pittsburgh? Because for a while you were kind of going back and forth, Pittsburgh to New York. Yeah, it wasn't quite enough for me to to live there full time. Productions lasted about two, three to four weeks. And so I would come down during that time because I was also in, you know, a chamber group in New York. Which um, and I, you know, had, had, had a long-term relationship in New York. So it, it was like trying to make both work. And, but every time I came, came to Pittsburgh, I just loved it. And I felt part of the city and I felt valued and I felt like I could afford to do yeah. anything I wanted, at least much more than New York. And it became more and more like, how can I get here like full time, you know? Right. So kind of going sideways a little bit, not necessarily backwards, but because this was happening at the same time, you were in a trombone quartet called the Guidonian Hand. How did that come to be as uh, forming that group? Uh, we were, you know, like we said, small world in New York. So we, we were four students. Was, I think I was the only man student. There's three at Manhattan School. And it just started like, oh, I'm putting together this concert. You guys want to play? And I have some cool stuff I want to play. And then just turn this thing. Hey, this is really fun. Let's keep doing this. And we all had similar like we liked newer music and we're in the hotbed of new music in New York City. And we just started getting these composers willing to write for us. And it turned into this thing. I was in the group for nine years. We we had management. We traveled around the country. Uh, we got so many new works written for us. So many amazing quartets that I think are some of the best things ever written. And it, it was, you know, such a challenge and great reviews in the New York Times that really helped us. And it it it, it was stuff that I never really did much in school because I think, you know, chamber music, we've talked about it, isn't really pushed as much in school as it can be in a lot of places. And some of the hardest things I've ever done and you can't hide and incredibly you have to be so aware of everybody and it, there's nothing better than chamber music. Oh, for sure. Yeah. If you want, if you want a wake up call for your chops and your ears, play some chamber music. <laughs> yeah. You said you commissioned a lot of works there, which is, we, you know, we've brought into the Tremone retreat as something that we like to do, but what are some of your favorite pieces that you were able to commission as a quartet? Oh man. Well, the, the, the first one that comes to mind is Jeremy Howard Beck's Awakening, mm -hmm. which if you guys haven't heard it, we, we have a recording of it. Which is really good. We, he was yeah. a, it's, it's amazing. It's really meaningful to him. It's like nine minutes long. It's, it's work and it's, it's very epic in nature. It's, it's, you do not do anything other than close with that piece. You can't follow that piece. We just sight read. He, uh, Jeremy was a Juilliard composition student at the time. 
and we just sight read this, you know, this guy wanted us to sight read his piece and make a recording of it. And he, he won a Morton Gould composer award mm, mm-hmm. f- for just that sight read recording of it. And we're like, damn, this piece is actually pretty good. And we ended up playing it all over the country. And I still miss playing it. Honestly, I was talking to the guys when I was visiting New York, like we got to get together and play this sometime. You and I should play it sometime. It's really, yeah, really impactful. And the cool thing is his career kind of took off when I got to play Pittsburgh opera actually commissioned him to, or I don't know if they commissioned him, but uh, he had written an opera and we played uh, one of his operas, the long walk, which was really awesome. So just developing relationships with composers like Eve Beglarian, Mm -hmm. We, we toured with her, you know, you look up the New Grove Dictionary and she's like in it. And yeah, that, that quartet what? that she wrote for you guys. Yeah, in and out of the game. And it's with, it's awesome. with uh, a backing track too, right? Yeah. That's a yeah, she spent, very powerful, powerful piece. She's amazing. That's a good closer yeah, she, too. If you haven't heard her music, check it out. I mean, there's a huge New York Times article about her. She spent an entire year traveling the full length of the Mississippi River by kayak and boat and hitchhiking and... Whoa. biking and and just meeting people along the way and she's she's one of the famous downtown composers and she does a lot of collage where she'll just collect found sounds so she collects a lot of sounds along the way and people singing or people she met and combines it with music and real rhythmical things and got to do so many cool things with her and i still i still love love that woman yeah it w- I, I had heard you in concert with the the guidonian hand a number of times it's always a uh... Well put together concert and very challenging, <laughs> very challenging. Sometimes too challenging. Yay! Let's play a Philip Glass saxophone quartet. That's a cool. I, I like. I like. I like hearing you guys play that one. But it is. It's cool it's that you don't take the horn off your face. We we did a master class at. We were playing at the Grand Canyon Music Festival, and then we did a a master class. I think it was like the University of Northern Arizona or something, wherever the closest to the Grand Canyon is, and it elevation's crazy high and we just show up and we're playing that that piece where you're just kind of gently suffocating the entire time because you're never quite getting to take a full breath and that was it was like a disaster like we couldn't even breathe but you know you made good to, good, good to learn you those made lessons. it you're alive <laughs> going back to pittsburgh and the back and forth so this time you're it, it, this is around 2013 you're still living in New York, but you have the Pittsburgh Opera. Then we start over a couple beers as the lore goes. We start talking about building this trombone retreat. Every every time we tell the story, we we've made a rule that you have to add one beer. So it's like on the on the on the twelfth beer, twelfth <laughs> beer. Well, I wish trombone trombone festival. <laughs> yeah, and that you know for for me on on my end of things, that was a really important move obviously because this is becoming a, a major part of our lives this one week and uh, this one week every summer and obviously all the planning that goes into it and now we have a podcast spun off from it yeah you know if you had a move to Pit- if you had moved to pittsburgh at that time maybe the trombone retreat would never would have happened you ever think about that yeah <laughs> i i haven't and i think that that concept had always been in the back of my mind of doing something like that and i've always wanted to do something like that but it's one of those things that like you just needed the right ingredients and you were you were the perfect friend to 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 do it with and the fact that it just it kind of lit the same light bulb in you and and you saw it as as a possibility and you believed in it too and you believed in me you know I still remember I still remember being in the subway 
on the way home from that night where we talked about it. And I was just so excited that you were excited about that idea. I wrote down so many notes in my phone in the subway ride of like, okay, we could do this and this and this. It could be like this. And I was just imagining. And, you know, we had no idea what we were doing. And <laughs> we still don't. <laughs> we, we, we're getting a little better yes. uh, each year. But it turned into this thing that's one of the best things in my life. And, and getting to work with one of my best friends is... I highly recommend it and it started this thing and it's just turning this thing at the end of the day. It's like, yeah, it's a business and it, it can do well in that regard. But like, it almost feels selfish because there's literally, you do all this work and you're exhausted. And at the end of it, you feel so good when you connect with these students and, and when, when you've changed a young person's life or like helped them avoid mistakes you've made or, you know, open up their eyes to something new. There's nothing better. Yeah. And we saw this camp as it's kind of filling a hole. It's not like other camps. It's kind of its own thing and benefiting from our lives as not just like, it's not just like come study with us and play in an orchestra someday. It's like, like how can we be happy as a musician? How, how can we open ourselves to a lot of different possibilities? I never imagined I'd be a professional chamber musician or a professional opera musician or play in a brass band. Like, I wasn't trained for any of that stuff mm. and it just kind of happened. So you got to wrap your head around kind of these bigger concepts, but yeah, I couldn't be happier to be doing it. Uh, well, how many years is this now? Is this is going to be eight? the eighth year. Yeah. Jeez, I'm crow. Jeez, I'm crow is right. Part of my, part of my language. I'm going to have to put a parental advisory on this. Now. Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned it, which was the next place I'm going. Cause I think it was the second year of the trombone retreat that you, it's, it's, it was kind of a long journey, but you auditioned for and got a job in the in the brass band as principal trombone. So can you tell us a little bit about this particular brass band, the brass band tradition, and your audition specifically for River City Brass Band? Yeah, the River City Brass Band has been around since, I think, 1981, over 40 years. We just, I think we're celebrating our 40th anniversary now. And I didn't know much about it before I came to Pittsburgh and then I just kept hearing people talk about it and it was like this thing and it's like in the musicians union here, it's the Pittsburgh Symphony, the Pittsburgh Opera, the Pittsburgh Ballet and the River City Brass Band. It's a 28 piece British style brass band. Technically, we our, our tagline is like we're the only full time brass band in the world. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't even know how you describe us, but it's this own thing with a huge following here for a long time and we play a lot of things here, mainly, you know, leaning towards the pop's end. We travel around the world, literally, and it's been so good for me, and I love it, and the people I love, some of the most joyful, encouraging people, and we're always just having fun, but always want to sound really good, and it couldn't be more opposite than my opera job. You're on the front row, you're playing constantly, you're playing melody all the time, you're playing technical things that are often more difficult than you'd ever have to play in opera repertoire. I'm having to solo, be featured as a soloist all the time. And it just puts you in this role of like, my endurance is like insane when, I, when I'm working. After this job, like I'm never scared subbing anywhere because like I never get tired. Because it just teaches you like two hours straight with a horn on your face, you just, you figure it out. <laughs> Nor am I ever intimidated sight reading. Half the things we do are, are sight read. My, my very first service was with them as a member was was sight reading a concert that, you know, there's a stock concert they've been playing for decades. And 
I sight read the whole thing in front of 7,000 people. And it's just like, okay, I guess this is my job now. And you're getting to develop more musically because you're playing melodies all the time. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's this crazy wild thing. We do shtick. It's, 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 it's a fun group and I feel lucky to play in it. So one fact I love about British style brass bands is there's only one instrument that plays in bass clef and that's the bass tremone. Every other instrument is in treble clef, including the tubas. It's fun. So it's very easy to sub on bass. I still want you to come sub sometime. But it's, 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 yeah, it's B flat treble is what I'm reading. Yeah. So it's like tenor which, clef sort of in a way. Yeah. It's tenor clef, but there's a few like traps you just memorize that like an E, E sharp is always an E natural, like that kind of thing. You get used to it and <laughs> you, you make some very obvious errors and, and you learn from them. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So when did you make the full time plunge to move to Pittsburgh? It was 2015, around the same time I, I, I was offered a professor position at Youngstown State University. And it was like the same time I, I got asked to be in the brass band after like a long process. So it was like, okay, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it now. And some of those things, I, I've always loved having a lot of different things to do. And I don't, I think, you know, there's so many merits to having a full-time, full-time job, but I like the variety. I don't think I, I want that in a lot of ways. And I like being able to do so many different things and coming here, it just felt right. And having this variety and it's, it's, I always describe it like having a diversified portfolio. Like I have a million different things that I do that alone probably wouldn't sustain me, but together, you know, give me security. And I never thought that would really come into play until this past year. Well, I think about our, our interview with Brad Edwards and he talks about freelancing and having that diversified portfolio as a form of job security. Cause it's like, if one of your jobs goes belly up, let's say, or there's a global pandemic and one of your jobs decides not for whatever reason, not to put on any productions with you, having a diversified portfolio, having many gigs on your plate, teaching, playing is a form of job security. It's fun. Yeah. You taught at Youngstown State for only one year, right? Or was it two? I think I was there. I think I was there a couple years. Yeah. It was getting getting my foot in the door teaching. Right. But it's good kids, good kids out there. But it was like hour and 15 minute drive each time. So it was, you know, it was a bit of a grind, but you eventually left that job because you got offered a job at Slippery Rock University. Yeah, it's a, it's a smaller school, mainly music education majors and you know, very good, ther- like one of the best therapy programs pound for pound in the country. And now you're on faculty at Duquesne University as well. Yep. Just bopping around. Bopping around, teaching everywhere, playing everywhere. The king of the yinzers. <laughs> oh, it's so exciting. And working with Jim Nova there. I'm just, I'm excited to, to, you know, really focus on more of my wheelhouse working with performance majors and, and recruiting nationally and, and, and people like pursuing a career in music. I mean, that's, that's the dream. And it's an honor to be able to, to help someone along that path. Yeah. Know? Going back to the brass band and opera, what have you learned from playing in an opera company? What have you learned from playing in a brass band? I've so, I mean, so much. I mean, you, you quickly learn that it's a job and it's like, you're very excited you win, but then you realize like you have a job to do. So, you know, people are coming to hear your performances to escape their problems or be inspired or experience something new. So 
you you leave your problems at the door you leave your issues you leave your unpreparedness you leave i don't care if you had a bad day or your dog died or your girlfriend broke up with you it's like your job is to perform and i i learned so much about just executing the job even when i didn't feel 100% what was most important and and then it's just so freaking fun like i i barely had any opera experience when i won this mm-hmm. job and my first opera's turned up and i like the only I'd only played opera scenes once at Manus, and then I had played an operetta by Gilbert and Sullivan at undergrad. Which one? Gondoliers. Oh, I don't know that one. Gondolieri. Yeah, it exactly. Um, it's well, it sounded like a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta. So enough said. <laughs> and then I'm thrown into this thing, and I'm just like, holy crap! Like this is real. <laughs> <laughs> but my playing was suited for it and I had no idea it was it is it just fit perfectly and it's such an amazing experience playing opera man like you know it's that's why we feel so good all the time cuz it's like this giant stress reliever you're putting so much passion into everything you do and it's such an important part like the world's ending or someone's falling in love or you're playing something really beautiful you're not just filler all the time there's some operas like that but mm-hmm. you know you're playing stuff that's important and that that's i it's i feel so lucky to be able to play it and we have a very good company and you know yeah same thing with brass band you just you're just acquiring skills and you're, you're finding you know you don't take it personally when there's something that you need to work on you're like oh cool i just need to work on this to do my job better and it's gonna make me better cool all right now can i jump into a couple of not necessarily rapid fire but something along rapid fire questions what would your dream day be my dream day I think for me, it's, you know, the weather's going to be nice. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to, you know, cook a great breakfast and water my plants, get a good workout in, practice something that's really inspiring or listen to music that's really inspiring and then get on a plane and go somewhere because I I very much love traveling. Would you go to a city or countryside, beach? Oh, guess it depends it gets i mean this year sucks but i i love nerding out about travel points and all that all that status and stuff and i've gotten lucky to get a lot of opportunities in that fact and and i always love just going there's so many places i've never been that i want to that experience so just a new culture a new place trying new food hearing the music meeting the people uh for me there's nothing better all right that's a pretty good day back in back into the musical side of things what is your favorite and your least favorite opera? Oh, I think I've said before. Okay. To preface, there, there's a difference between playing it and listening to it. So to play it, Traviata, I, yeah, I don't enjoy. Not very much fun. Yes, it's one of the greatest operas ever. I understand. I support it. But Trombone Par is not very fun, and I just feel not important um correct i had a similar experience with oh what was that poulenc opera mm. where, where all the nuns get their oh, heads dialogue chopped of off the at the end dialogue of the carmelites incredible opera but like trombones kind of use more like a percussion instrument than anything through that and it's also like when you spend three weeks living in that world where it's just like minor and depressing it's like you feel that you know <laughs> after a while favorite opera oh gosh Man, 
you know, it's it's still you can sing so much on Puccini. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many moments. I don't think I could pick one. I like doing the modern ones too. Like Jeremy Howard Beck's was great. I really enjoyed uh, Philip Glass's Orphe that we did, uh, or Faye, however you pronounce it. It was just this meditative, beautiful experience for two hours where I'm just playing these beautiful chords and long tones in the mid register and like zoning out. That was amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm an experience. If it just the experience is good, and that's what's cool about opera. Like every night's gonna be different. Yeah. You feed off the crowd's energy, which I love. It's not just this like set in stone thing. What about symphony? Favorite symphony? Least favorite symphony? Or maybe it's easier to do favorite. I still I still say Gretzky Symphony Number no. Three. Oh, beautiful. Which is kind of an oddball choice. Um, never gotten to perform it. It's one of those other things. I heard the trombone part is not the most exciting, but that's one that. I think I could just be immersed in that sound world. It's one of those things, if you never heard it, just like download that Don Upshaw, London Sinfonietta, David Zinman recording, lay down in your room, turn the lights off on a rainy day and just listen to it. It's it's going to change your life. Beautiful. So yeah. And I saw, you can kind of see the <laughs> tendencies of music I like, right? Like when I saw Sadia Graha at the Met, the Philip Glass movie opera about Gandhi, I was floating for four hours. It was just transformative experience what is your biggest regret Ooh, Ooh. just in life sure and it can be any anything you know i try i've always had the mindset where i don't regret things because i I still learn you know and because you have to be able to forgive forgive yourself for mistakes you've made because i've always felt like i've done the best to to my knowledge at the time you know there's always things where I think about being a little more focused or working a little harder at a certain point in my life. But at the same time, there was a reason I wasn't and I needed to feel what it felt like to, to not get what I wanted. So I never, uh, yeah, to, to go around your answer. Like, I don't think I've ever fully regretted. Well, I've heard before that regret is living in the past and worrying is living in the future when we should um, try to live in the present as all the great minds tell us to do. Right. Mm-hmm. I'll let that's where all happiness I'll, is. I mean, I, li- I like the answer. I'll let, uh, because I like the answer, I'll let you skirt the question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what about your proudest moment? <sighs> proudest moment. I mean, obviously, the first, the first big audition that I won, you know, winning the opera and getting to call my mom afterwards, there's no better feeling because my mom busted her ass like working three jobs with not much child support or sometimes never any and never said no to any of my musical opportunities. You know, Oh, you got into Brevard this summer and it's going to cost thousands of dollars that we don't have. Okay. Don't worry about, it. we're going to figure it out. Like there's just countless instances like that and being able to share that with her and indirectly. That's, that's how I was proud to like be able to honor my parents that way. I get, I don't know why, but I've just accepted about this this about myself. I, I get the most choked up when my friends, like when something goes well for them, when I know they've been working hard on something or something works out for them. That's when I get emotional because I'm just so excited when, when something works out. You know, the same feeling you get with your students. Right. You know, it almost feels selfish. Yeah, those moments, a recent moment getting to play Bolero for the first time when I was playing with Harrisburg because it's just spending so much of your life preparing for this piece and then finally getting to do it and it going well and doing the right work that I know I needed to do and it going really, really well. That was just like a moment where I'm like, 
yeah, you are capable. You deserve, you know, because no matter how much success I've had or anyone, and we've talked about this, there's always part of you that's like imposter syndrome or like, am I really, can I really do this? Or is this just this one hole in my playing where everyone's going to finally find out I'm a giant fraud, you know? Well, you're always waiting for that to happen. I mean, there's certain (laughs) pieces, I mean, and experiences, especially as a principal tremonist, like you talk to seasoned principal tremonists and Bolero is still going to make them a little clammy, you know, like, and, uh, and it's our job to like be so good at so many different things, so many different areas of our playing, so many different styles, like as professionals, totally. that there, there's so many areas you're playing that of course there could be a, a weak area that you, you realize that you didn't spend time on. And, but I, my mindset is like, you just look at it as a, as a challenge or like a fun, Oh, I get to work on this now. Well, back to your mom, just for one second. I can, I can say that in the trombone world, at least anyone who knows Rosie, she's like the, the trombone mom. She is. <laughs> she's like, everyone who sees her is a instant hug. And it's like seeing mom again. She's a, she's a great one. She, she supported a lot of students with scholarships to the retreat. Yes. Too. yes. Like, ne- we never ask her to do that. And she, yeah, it's, Really emotional and financial support for us and young students on the on the up and up okay to steal one of your questions advice for your 18 year old <laughs> self this might tie in with <laughs> your your final question if, if i'm guessing you're going to get to that my biggest thing and the first thing i talk about with new students is is not being afraid to fail is just go in the direction of just taking chances and throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall and learning from it rather than just like picking and choosing something that you think you're, you're going to be successful in and just hoping that works out. So I would have told myself to take more chances, take more auditions, go talk to that girl that's looking at you and smiling and don't be afraid. <laughs> All the little Scared. things that like my instincts were always just like run away or just wanting to be reassured all the time. We're, we're so afraid of not being perfect that we just, find ourselves making excuses and not taking opportunities or like subconsciously, well, I I ended up not really practicing much for this. So I'm just not going to make a tape for that audition or, you know, that kind of thing. I, I, it's something I I learned a little later and, but all the greatest knowledge comes from failure. Honestly, the, the most, the best education sometimes and every successful person has, has failed. And the, the, the more successful people are the ones that embrace that and learn from it. And every huge setback I've had, I I've learned from it and I've, or I've taken a a new value. I mean, something I I forgot to mention the last year of grad school, the year before I won the the audition, you know, my mom gets cancer and then my stepdad gets, it's a pulmonary lung disease, which is, is fatal. If, if you don't get a double lung transplant, the only cure is a double lung transplant. A terminal is the word. Mm -hmm. And they had it at the same time. And it just turned into this thing like I, I technically didn't finish that degree because I was going home so much. Um, there's there's a class that I, I couldn't attend. Maybe you can pull some strings and get me my professional studies uh, certificate yeah. from. Yeah, Manus. it's going to change your um, life, I'm sure. I'll go. I'll go make up that class, performance master class. <laughs> I just had a few I had to do, mm-hmm. and that taught me so much and about just valuing things like because you never. That's the thing. The only constant you can know about in life is that there's going to be curveballs. And they're going to come when you least expect it. You've experienced this. Mm -hmm. So you can't live life trying to avoid these things because something's going to happen that you're not expecting. But you can develop a mindset that is resilient and can can take punches and roll with them 
and learn from these experiences. So for me, long story long to answer to your question, that, that's the biggest thing is, is just going for it and, and learning from everything that life gives you. I like that. It encompassed a lot of things. So I can ask you my, my question, which is not my last question. I have, I have two oh. more, but what do you think students need to do more of? Yeah. So it, it's tied yeah. in. Don't be afraid to okay. fail. Don't be afraid to fail. And we've had so many good answers to this question on this podcast. And this is one that I think hasn't really been talked about. And to, if you can develop a mindset of not taking this stuff so personally, you know, a test doesn't go well, an audition doesn't go well, a performance doesn't go well, that doesn't define you. That's you on one day of your life for like an hour or 10 minutes. You have a choice. You can go home and, and turn on Netflix and buy a bunch of ice cream and feel sorry for yourself. Or you can be like, okay, be honest with myself. Like, was that the best I can play? No. Is there something I could have done better in my preparation? How did I feel in that moment? What can I tweak? Mm. Like, look at it objectively. And the people that do that and, you know, it, it's you don't want to suppress those feelings. Like, if you're upset, feel that. But don't dwell on it. And get back in the practice room the next day. Like, who choice A or choice B, like, who do you think is going to have a more successful career? If you can br- brush off these, like, things as you're going to fail much more than you succeed. Like they say, you know, people that are successful in like 3% of auditions are well above average, some like something crazy like that. So getting right back on the horse and building that consistency in your playing, if you have that mindset of like being excited to just take chances and go for it, nothing's going to stop you. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Okay. Favorite retreat moment. <laughs> I know what yours would be, but they're probably rated R or just golly. I that that first year still sticks out of like us just running around with our heads cut off, but it ended up going really well and all the students the enjoyed students it. Loved it. <laughs> but but you know, we just did a lot of stuff and we're just like not sleeping and <laughs> Yeah, changing the schedule uh, at two in the morning. <laughs> fair retreat moment. It's it's for me it's just a feeling, you know. Every year when it ends, seeing the difference it's made. And connecting with so many people and all these new people that are now in my life that I know. And, you know, the thing we tell everyone at the end of every retreat is like, hey, we're, we're here for you for life. Like, if you ever need to email us or give us a call, and many students have taken us up on this. Like, oh, yeah, I'm still in touch know. with so many of our students. It's incredible. And we're happy to do it. And we're all, we're all just trying to figure out this life thing, you know. We're all just doing our best and we're just trying to be happy. And, you know, my whole goal with this podcast in a lot of ways is, is to just highlight the individual personalities that exist in our world. And, you know, we're not just all trying to compete for the same thing. It's like, we need to celebrate the diversity of personalities and encourage people to be their own musician and their own player and, and stop comparing ourselves to other people or trying to be one version of the best. Cause that's, that's not where happiness comes mm-hmm. from. You know, it comes from knowing yourself really well and discovering things and, 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 ex- and connecting to an audience and sending positivity out in the world and helping people and, and making the world more beautiful, you know, at the end of the day, like that's all we're trying to do. Right. So I don't know it every year. I'm just trying to be present and trying to be happier and trying to love myself more and enjoy everything. And I'm so grateful we're doing this thing together and it's, it's turned into this whole thing and I can't believe so many people listen to it and that if it helps one person, I'm, I'm thrilled. Yeah. We're, you know, we're just, we want to be a conduit for this kind of thing. And I couldn't be more, you know, grateful to be doing with you. Well, I agree. 
So I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I really appreciate you opening up and telling us your whole story and being on the being in the hot seat, I suppose. <laughs> I didn't cry, so it's victory. <laughs> hey, no, none of that toxic masculinity around here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll share we'll share a group cry when this is all done. Well, thank you very much, Sebastian. And I guess <laughs> I guess I'll I, I can't say uh I don't know when I'll see you again because I'll see you uh, in Georgia for the trombone retreat and I'll see you for our next yeah. podcast and I'll see you. No, Georgia for the, the trombone retreats in Michigan. Wait, what? Georgia for the international trombone festival in STS. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And everyone, please, if you see us, come say hi. We'd love to, to meet people and we'll have more details about our event soon. I think it, it's kind of getting moved around, but it might be a thing where get there early to get in because it might be a capacity thing depending on which room we're in. So yeah, we're, yeah, we're really looking forward to interviewing Mr. Joe Alessi and now you can take a, now deep. you can take a, a, a sigh of relief that you have accomplished your interview. I've been trying to get this over with. Like I, I've been pu- pushing it back so far cause I was just like, I don't know. It's, it can be a lot to talk about yourself for yes, this long. Of course. I much, I, I, I've enjoyed the interview part. Like, I've talked to you about it. Like I'm enjoying nerding out about this stuff. It's such a, it's such an art form interviewing someone. And I've enjoyed just studying great interviewers and, and trying to get in the mindset of really getting someone comfortable to open up and, and something that I'll connect. And there's so much that's transferable, you know, as a musician, all these life lessons we learn as musicians, they transfer to so many different things, like every art form, you know, even sound editing, everything we do. And so like, it's fascinating learning about this art form of making a podcast and with you and, and doing all these things is like you realize so much of your musical abilities that you can bring over right. to it. So it's, it's been really cool. And I'm just thankful to everybody for giving a, a toot, a toot, a toot, a toot. Well, thank you, Sebastian. We have, to end on, we have to end on laughter. So it's one of those, those good, like transition moments. Ha 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 ha. Like I said in the intro, uh, I was pretty nervous about this one. I just, I think part of it is, you know, I'm, I'm not always the best with technology, first of all, but also I wanted to do my good friend justice. I wanted to tell his story in the best way I could. I wanted the questions to be leading towards him opening up. And I think hopefully I did a good job at that. I know he did his job the way he's supposed to. He talked about his life and his road to success, you know, with the, all the bumps along the way. And I think that he did a great job. And so hopefully I was able to do my friend justice. And I I think I did, (laughs) if if I can say so. Yeah, it was, it was really good to talk to him. I knew most of his story just because we're such good friends, but there were a couple of details I didn't know. Like he lived in Maine. Didn't know that. Uh, (laughs) I know it was for a short while, but yeah, and I didn't know about how things happened to Akron. I knew he went to Akron for a year, and I, I knew that that experience was a big kind of, like, I think he put it, a, a, not a wake-up call, maybe a, a kick in the butt, maybe is how he put it. I, I can't remember exactly, but I think you understand what I'm saying. And I think we've all had experiences like that. And part of the reasons we do this podcast is to show people that, even the most successful 
person you can think of probably had some moment like that, that a kick in the butt really bringing them down to earth and realizing like either, Hey, I need to work harder or, Hey, I need to work smarter or, Hey, I'm not there yet. Even though I thought I was. Yeah. It made me think of experience I had when, when I was about that time in my life where Sebastian ended up at Akron, I had just graduated from Juilliard and I was at music Academy of the West for the summer. And I was studying with Mark Lawrence. And so leading up to that, maybe a year and a half leading up to that, I had taken a number of auditions and I started doing pretty well. I was making finals. I was runner up for a couple of, of jobs. Um, only finals for a job in Sweden and they ended up not offering me the job. And so while that was frustrating and, and in my mind, the way I had taken all of that was, you know, yes, I was frustrated and I had taken it as like, I need to work more, blah, blah, blah. But apparently I, I'm guessing there was something about my demeanor or something like that, that Mark Lawrence picked up on as you're getting a little too comfortable in your playing and your, and in your preparation and you're not quite there yet. Yeah. You've gotten close, but you know, he, so he sat me down and he basically in the nicest way possible, cause he's a very nice person <laughs> ripped me a new one and, um, said, Hey, you know, you've made runner up. Yes, that's great. But you're not there. You're not there until you get a job. And that moment made me realize like, in reality, I'm no closer than I was when I began in, in a lot, in a lot of ways. And I needed it, needed to treat my, my preparation and my progress in my own life, just like starting over day one, just because you advanced last time doesn't mean you're going to advance the next time. And so I say this not to like toot my own horn, certainly not that, but to, to just tell a, a story, my own story real quick about being brought down to earth, you know, and Sebastian for him, like he said, that was the wake up call or the kick in the butt, whatever he used, uh, whatever phrase he used that he didn't know that he needed because that year experience of playing in those orchestras in Ohio and studying at Akron with a very good tremonist, Ed Zadrozny. And then the next year he fulfilled the dream of living in New York city by going to Manus. So Personally, <laughs> roundabout way of getting there, but personally, I'm very thankful that that experience happened to him because I, I mean, maybe he wouldn't have ended up in New York and maybe we, maybe we would have met, maybe we wouldn't have, but the road to where we go sometimes isn't very fun, but it's the road that we need to take. Right. So that was the road he needed. And I think it ended very positively for him. I mean, he, he's in Pittsburgh now and you know, I, I, I hope he knows this. I'm, I've told him a lot. I don't know if he realizes the, the sincerity and depth of this. It was really tough for me when Sebastian left New York. Very, very tough. Cause he was one is one of my closest friends. And we, we hung out all the time. We played trombone. We'd go out for dinner. We'd go do things. You know, we, we were hung out as much as possible really. And, suddenly this person that was, is so dear to me was moving away. And we all have experiences, but while I was incredibly happy for him, uh, and, and it was obviously the right move to move to Pittsburgh. I mean, he has 
a great life there, a, a beautiful home, great friends and, and, and great work, work to be proud of. And that's one of the tough things in the music business, I think, is that sometimes we have to leave our friends and family behind to go pursue work because the work isn't everywhere. It's, you kind of have to go to the work. The work doesn't come to you. And yes, he was working in New York, but you know, he, it, it life was pulling him to Pittsburgh. So I hope you know that Sebastian, that that was a, a dark day in my life when you finally left New York, but I was very happy for you at the same time. So one thing that I want to, um, impress here in the outro that, you know, on a, on a podcast about music, you can't really get into what makes someone so special as a musician. I mean, you can talk about it, but you know, we play music and Sebastian has, uh, a certain quality to his, his playing, especially particularly his musicianship and his phrasing and even more specifically his vibrato. And these things are what kind of drew me to him as a, as a fellow trombonist and musician when I, when we first started playing together is his natural sense of phrasing and the beauty of his sound and vibrato. And it's, it's odd. I've thought about this, you know, with students uh, being a teacher and just in conversations with colleagues, there, there are certain things in music that you can absolutely learn and you can absolutely teach even down to phrasing and vibrato, it, you, it, if you don't have it naturally ingrained in you, you can mimic people that you like. You can mimic, you know, Joe Lessie's vibrato, or you can m- mimic Jim Markey's technique, or whatever you want to do. You know, to do that if it's not naturally ingrained in you. But there's something about Sebastian's playing that there's just a natural ability to it, especially when it comes to those things. And I'm not downplaying the other other parts of playing for him, but specifically trying to highlight something that I think he's very special at. And I remember the first Tramone retreat, he he was giving a master class and there was a student playing a Bordoni, Rochu, whatever you want to call it. And Sebastian started demonstrating. And (laughs) even though it was his master class, I spoke up right after he demonstrated and said something along along the lines of if you want to learn how to phrase and how to play a Bordoni, you should just listen to Sebastian because the way he did it was so natural in the phrasing goes where it's supposed to go. And it just kind of makes sense. You know, Uh, that's the only way I can put it. It's so hard to describe because I'm doing it in words and not playing you an example of what I mean from his playing. So, going forward, another experience like that, that I had at the trombone retreat was, uh, probably maybe, maybe 2017 or 18. He played an arrangement of the Adagietto from Mahler five for trombone and piano. And if you don't know that, turn off this podcast and go listen to the, listen to Mahler five and, and listen to the, the fourth movement, the Adagietto gorgeous. One of the most beautiful movements in classical music history in my opinion, I think in a lot of people's opinions, it's just a really moving moment and it just suited his playing and that special something in phrasing so well that actually over the pandemic, at one point we were talking, you know, Sebastian in our administration staff and myself, we have a, a group chat 
And I asked the question, what was your favorite trombone retreat moment? And all the moments, you know, were kind of away from the horn experiences, maybe the, the fireside chat that we have every year, or it was, uh, going on the boat and jumping in Lake Michigan things like this. And I said, okay, what's your favorite musical moment? And for me, you know, top two was that Mahler five that Sebastian played just because it was an afternoon recital. We were in a beautiful space with sunlight coming in and it was just a beautiful moment. And I think that for me sums up both Sebastian musically and Sebastian as a person. I, I honestly, I think that moment just kind of encapsulated why we do this thing that we do, the trombone retreat and now the podcast and why I want to do it with him is a moment like that. So I hope you enjoyed uh, listening to this interview. I, I, like I said, I was nervous wanting to do Sebastian justice and I think, I think it went well, (laughs) but I really, I really enjoyed it in the end. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. If you want to leave a question or topic you'd like us to discuss, we may answer it on the podcast. Follow us at Tremone Retreat on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter, and our website, TremoneRetreat.com, where you can also join our mailing list. You can follow Sebastian at JS Vera, and you can follow myself at BassTremone444. And if you're feeling down, go peel an orange, do three burpees, and never forget to retreat yourself.